Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumiti Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks are flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Peter Rangel. Peter is a spiritual counselor based in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's been a facilitator of the Love, Intimacy, and Sexuality Workshops for the Human Awareness Institute for 30 years. He's a teacher of heart meditation and the author of three books, Living Life in Love, Seeds of Light, and My Eleven Enlightening Days with Sri Muji. Peter helps people to transcend psychology in order to awaken their love and to live in harmony with life's spiritual rhythms. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks, Sumati. Great, great to be here. So glad so, to have uh, you. So for me, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we talked, we were talking before the show formally began and you reminded me, and I know this from taking workshops that you've led, that you have a slower pace and I love that and you're a spiritual teacher. And so I want us all to experience that slower pace and really fall into that rhythm of being in tune with our hearts and our bodies. And so I'm just going to slow it down a little and kind of match you there. <laughs> And ask you, um, you know, you you bring spirituality, sexuality, and psychology all together. So can you share with us your story a little bit about how you found your own unique blend of all those disciplines? Uh, Sure. Thanks for the question. And um, I wouldn't say I found it. I'd say I'm in the process of finding it, as all of us are. Mm -hmm. And... um, I guess it all started way back and uh, with Muktananda. I happened to be walking by his ashram one day and knew nothing about him and walked in the door, and that was uh, the beginning of my journey, I guess I'd say. Mm-hmm. And when was that? Uh, Mid-70s, something like that. Mm, and okay. um, I, I, Actually, what happened for me is I um, was so enthralled with it and and kind of got drawn into states of consciousness that within a week I had sold everything and was living in the ashram and had profound uh, experiences there that I had no idea what was happening because I had no concept of spirituality at the time. So it was all kind of an innocent uh, opening on my part. Wow. And in retrospect, can you name what drew you into the ashram that day when you didn't really even know much about it? Um, I would say some innate, uh, something in my heart got called, and I had no Mm. idea it was there. And it was um, Mm -hmm. compelling, very compelling. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then within a week, you'd sold everything and moved into the ashram. Yeah, I actually had um, what would be called a Satori experience there that lasted for about a week in which there was no longer ego here. There was just emptiness and the void and the beauty of quietness and um, went through a period of just no Peter in here, just uh, the beauty of that emptiness. And the universe kind of kept giving me um, more and more subtle tests that somehow 
that entity called Peter was uh, passing. And then at one moment I flunked a test and the ego came rushing back in and um, it was <laughs> very depressed, depressing, let's say. <laughs> I was mm. no longer enlightened. <laughs> wow. Well, I read on your website there was a point there where you were feeling suicidal. Was this before you found Muktananda that you were feeling almost suicidally depressed? Uh, no, it actually was after I came back from that experience. It was um, kind of like if I couldn't live on planet Earth in that state of consciousness, life wasn't worth living, and I couldn't Ooh. find my way back to that. So it was like I might as well kill myself if I can't um, mm. have the ultimate that I've already experienced. Mm. So how did you manage to live with your ego knowing that that state was available? Well, I then got drawn down to Los Angeles to a guy named Brew Joy, who was uh, kind of an energy teacher, chakras and healing energy. And I had never met the man. And the first night of our group, it was about a 10-day group, and the first night he turned to me and said, if you want to commit suicide, let me know how I can support you. And I just wow. burst into tears because I, I felt like I had been seen. I felt like, you know, he totally loved me and accepted the suicidal part of myself and so I hung out with Drew for a few years, learning what he had to offer, uh, and that was the start of our relationship. Wow, that says a lot there about how, you know, being seen, just being seen for exactly who we are is, is really the healing salve, isn't it? Yeah, for me it was. I think it is for people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. And then you went to India. Tell us about that. <laughs> Uh, I laugh because it's um, in the spirit of um, just getting down to nothing. I got this bug in me to like go for enlightenment and I sold everything I owned, closed all my bank accounts, got on an um, airplane to Hawaii, thought I'd um, hike back into the middle of uh, the big island in the middle of nowhere and just sit there and see what happened. And uh, so mm -hmm. I did all of that. And um as I sat down, I went, this doesn't feel good. And it was uh, kind of death-like because of all the volcanic rock and stuff. And so I, after all that preparation and everything, I um, stood back up, walked out of the wilderness. First thing I saw was some um, Rajneesh people, Osho Rajneesh at the time, uh, walking by. And they were dressed in purple and a mala. And I went, oh, I must have to go there. So with that sign, I just got on the next airplane to India and uh, – hung out with Rajneesh over in India for uh, part, uh, some time then and then went back a few times and actually ended up living on the ranch in Oregon for three and a half years. Oh, really? Nice. So, yep. Wow, kind we of could my... probably do a whole show about that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, in terms of um, polyamory and what we're talking about here, that was actually my first experience of polyamory, although it wasn't called that in those days. Um, what happened was uh, one of the first nights up on the ranch in Oregon, I uh, met up with this woman. We had incredible energy happening between us. We went to her place and were sexual with one another, and I totally fell in love with her and just went, wow, this is incredible. Uh, like I found my soulmate or whatever, you know, was going on in me. And she had a beautiful mm -hmm. experience. And um, as, as I woke up in the morning and said, well, I guess I'll see you tonight. She said, I have no idea when we'll see each other next. And I kind of got, oh, oh, the message here, you're just in the moment. There's no past and future to anything. And kind of was, oh, that's the game that's being played here. And so I was there for three and a half years in that dynamic and in that common belief system among people there. And it was incredible that just left me in the moment again and again and again with myself and beautiful exchanges and experiences with people, but no past or future to them. And that was really quite an amazing three and a half years there. Wow. And did you spend time with other spiritual teachers in India besides um, Osho? Uh, yeah, after uh, Osho died, um, I spent some time with a man named Papaji in Lucknow in India. Uh, a lot of people from Osho's community were headed up there. And so I went there, and I actually didn't find much of a connection there, didn't speak to me particularly, um, came back to the Western world again, um, 
and it was some years down the line uh, where I ran into a guy named Muji, and uh, that was only about five years ago. And I spent some time in his ashram in uh, Portugal, went there twice, and went to India to see him once, and um, have had some really, uh, again, some profound experiences, but at some level, experience, spiritual experiences are just spiritual experiences. And um, so uh, he he... How can I say it? Being in his energy field is quite incredible, and he has it that the body-mind is an illusion, which I've had kind of satori experiences that has me know that's true. But in my world, I am lost in the body-mind illusion, and that is my reality. And, yes, I have tastes of other realities, but on a day-to-day basis, I believe I'm Peter in a body and, um, you know, having human experiences. So I feel like I've basically flunked enlightenment this lifetime, and I'm just hanging out, (laughs) being a human being on the planet, doing the best I can do, and, you know, trying to be kind to people and have my heart open and, you know, be in a sexual rhythm with myself and my wife and whatever. And, you know, just uh, (laughs) it's not too bad flunking enlightenment. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a different kind of enlightenment because, you're, you know, they call it being a householder or, you know, bringing all the principles that you learned while you were, you know, being with the spiritual teachers into relationship and marriage and being a parent. That's the hard part. It's relatively easy to sit in a tree and meditate, but, you know, you've chosen to not only bring it into your personal life, but then to also teach relationships to other people. So tell us how you kind of bridged that to get to where you're, you began teaching love, intimacy, and sexuality to others. Well, I, um, I guess it probably started in terms of uh, the ranch and Osho and all of that in terms of um, energetic connections and being in uh, spiritual sexuality as well as hot, lusty sex and all kinds of flavors of that. And then when I came back from that world in 1985, um, very soon thereafter, um, a woman – I had a house and I had a room to rent in the house, and a woman came to become my housemate, and I liked her a lot. She moved in, and – um, we ended up uh, becoming lovers pretty quickly after that, even though we knew that was really dangerous stuff, you know, but uh, that's what we chose. And she was just leaving her husband at the time and wasn't you know, wanting to get into a relationship. So uh, we ended up in a relationship, uh, kind of rebound relationships that supposedly don't work. And some 35 years later, we're still hanging out with each other. So oh. maybe rebound relationships can work. <laughs> Uh, yes, there's always exceptions. <laughs> yeah. And then, so, so um, then, so tell uh, us, a, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, so actually at that point, um, Donna was actually uh, grieving the loss of her husband and, you know, the divorce that she was having. And um, I had spent years in uh, spiritual, in ashrams and places trying to bypass the human experience. And what I realized is I had jumped over my emotions and, just uh, was trying to get someplace beyond the human experience. And what Donna helped me with is I'd say, I call her my emotional teacher because she's very Mm -hmm. sensitive to her feelings and spent a lot of time the first year we were together grieving the loss of her husband and me holding her and my own emotions getting ignited in a very tender, vulnerable and beautiful way. And so Mm -hmm. what happened out of all of that was just really being in the joy of the human experience and not seeing emotions as good or bad or right or wrong. Emotions are just emotions and they happen. And they, the more fully I can experience them, the more human I am and the more I can connect with other people. And it's kind of, I've learned that vulnerability is the gateway into incredible experiences, both inside myself and with other people. So that mm-hmm. all happened out of um, going to, uh, the Human Awareness Institute, we went to uh, a weekend workshop there in 1988. We met in 85. Mm-hmm. We went to that workshop in 88. And um, immediately I just connected with that work and it felt like home to me. And the founder, Stan Dale, and I had an incredible uh, um, relationship with one another. And I very quickly um, learned how to lead those workshops and have been leading them ever since. So their mm-hmm. love, intimacy, and sexuality. And so basically I've been a student of that in that room. I'm teaching, but at the same time, I'm learning like crazy from everybody's mm-hmm. human experiences and 
how mm-hmm. real it is and how much we share with each other and all of that. So um, being in that room for 30 weekends a year for 25, 30 years, um, it's quite an amazing learning process as well as teaching process. So it's a, a, been an incredible blessing in my life and my wife uh, also, you know, she, she leads the workshops too. So it's just mm-hmm. a, a lovely connect, connection we have and a lovely um, dance into the human experience with each other and with all the participants who are there. Beautiful. So um, I, ha- you know, the, the high workshops had a huge influence on my life as well. I started going in 1997 and um, many guests that I've had on my show here have mentioned high as a big part of their personal growth journey. So it's had a big influence on people, especially in the Bay Area and Northern California, but all over the world as well. So um, one question that, that you probably get a lot, too, that I get about High uh-huh. is, um, sure. is you know, I know the founder of High, um, Stan Dale, had a polyamorous mm-hmm. arrangement. And that was kind of the first mm-hmm. time I'd been exposed to that, that I learned that there was such a thing. And so right. people often think that, that High is like, teaching polyamory or promoting polyamory or trying to turn you into polyamorous person. So can you, can you address that? Cause I'm sure you get that question a lot too. So what do you have to say about that? Um, so it's very interesting to see what happens in that room because people uh, really learn that they're a choice and they learn to, they, to not just go by the programming of society or the church or what they grew up with. And there are many monogamous people that come there and they deepen their relationship incredibly and definitely find ways to communicate and see the beauty of emotional vulnerability and get rid of shame and guilt around sexuality with each other. And we celebrate that very, very much. And then other people come there and they're kind of like reliving the teenage years. Perhaps they didn't get a chance to relive or they're just interested in, you know, exploring their sexuality and in uh, honest communication with people about what the purpose of their sexuality is, whether it is to create a monogamous relationship or a polyamorous relationship or no relationship whatsoever, whatever is communicated before they're sexual so there's lots of different choices being made there. And High's position is that as long as it's consensual, as long as there's permission, as long as it's clear communication with people about what they're up to, it's about them choosing for themselves. And some people who have been polyamorous become monogamous there, and some people have been monogamous experiment in polyamory, and some people stay monogamous uh, for their whole period that they're involved in high. Uh, all kinds of choices are made, and all we want to do is make sure that people are clear in what they're up to so that uh, there isn't misunderstandings as to the reason that you're connecting in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest gifts that I found of high is the communication skills and the practice that you get because we don't learn that in school or from most of our families. And so you get to be in a workshop where you get to practice developing the courage to really speak up about what you want and try different things. And um, people who are practicing ethical non-monogamy have to develop that skill. You have to get good at, first of all, knowing what you want and then being able to ask for it. So I found that the high workshop is such a great laboratory for practicing those skills, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And the thing that's beautiful that's happening there at this point has to do with um, just our whole level of sensitivity around consent and permission and just all the different choices, uh, lifestyle choices people are making and uh, all the different um, flavors of gender that are happening and all of that is uh, what we've all been learning the last five years or so and continue to uh, integrate into the workshops at this point. And so all of that is part of the acceptance of yourself as a human being and other people and in terms of uh, respecting people's choices, whatever they are. And that the most important mm-hmm. thing is to just be honest and truthful and exactly what you're saying, you know, to actually find out what you like because a lot of people have no idea 
what they want because they've never really given themselves permission to look at that or to take the lid off of their programming around all of that. So Mm -hmm. that's a, a big, big deal that happens for people. And the other part has to do with people being really sensitive to other people's um, boundaries and what's okay and not and being very delicate in the exploration of that with one another and communicating, um, you know, before any kind of interaction might happen as to what's okay and what's not okay and just be in a school for all of that that there's a whole new level of communication that it wasn't there when I first got there at the level of sensitivity it is now. So it's just mm-hmm. beautiful to watch the evolution of the workshops themselves. Mm-hmm. And so what was the evolution of your relationship with your wife, Donna? Were you guys ever full-on polyamorous, or do you do a monogamish thing? Or what's been the evolution of your relationship with regard to monogamy and non-monogamy? Um, when we first met, I had just got, uh, come off the ranch with Osho, so I wasn't um, wanting any kind of monogamous relationship, and Donna understood that, and she had um, been in a uh, – in those days, it wasn't called polyamory, you know, but um, mm-hmm. it, she had been in a relationship with her husband in which they had uh, sexuality with other people under certain circumstances. So we entered mm. into that world t- together, um, and uh, as we entered into it, there became a lot of processing that went on for us and just a lot of emotions that went on that kind of clouded our relationship. And so we tried it for a period of, I don't know, three or four years. And then we both decided to stop it just to, you know, to get some peace and quiet between us and have more connection with us and um, had no idea where that would lead, but that was a choice we made for a, a number of years. And then, I think as we felt more connected and more at peace with one another in some way and more um, knowing that we were life partners, then um, we ventured back into that world again. And with this time without the drama and all of the, you know, processing that went on. And we obviously had to learn a lot in order to do that. And we learned a lot by what we did the first time. And we learned a lot from, um, me coaching people and learning experiences around that in my office. I've been doing that for 35 years. So, you know, just uh, I learn as much as I give in sessions in my office. So that's all a learning process as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, so um, I've had a male friend that uh, we've been sexual. He's bisexual. I, I call myself uh, um, heteroflexible in terms of I'm mm-hmm. really attracted to women, but at times I'm attracted to men too. And he and I have had mm-hmm. a sexual relationship for 30 years um, occasionally. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can go we can go a year without be connecting that way, and other times we might connect mm-hmm. every few months. But uh, mm-hmm. his his wife is totally um, loves that we do that. She wants her husband to have what he wants in terms of his bisexuality and. She and I are mm-hmm. good friends, and so we know each other well. And we don't. She's not threatened by that at all, and so, uh, neither is Donna. Mm-hmm. Donna celebrates it, so that happens really easily. And and Donna mm-hmm. went to Burning Man with a one time with a couple times actually with just an open, you know, do whatever she wanted to do, and that was really fun mm-hmm. for her. So it, it, it's yeah, not. So I wouldn't a lot say of couples it's a, have the, the a lot of couples have the Burning Man exception to their monogamy. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, at, at, at this point, um, the best thing we say is we have no labels on our relationship. You're just in the moment with what shows up in life. And if someone's attracted to someone, there's a conversation and whatever. And um, haven't been sexual outside the relationship that much. Uh, a woman uh, recently, she and I got together and was really beautiful. And um, then in her life with her husband, uh, it turned out that uh, for that t- period of time, she didn't want to continue, and we're still friends. And just, you know, it's really about being with what's really happening in the moment in everybody's life and what works and what doesn't. And kind of like the ranch of not creating a past or a future to it, just, you know, if something feels right in the moment, that's fine. But, you know, the past and future is with my wife, and that, that's what feels right for me. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. And so in the workshops that you lead, there's all these people there that are practicing, um, you know, maybe stretching their edge a little bit, um, trying on different ways of relating to people sexually, emotionally, spiritually. 
So how do you hold the space for maybe couples that show up together and, and get triggered by, um, you know, somebody doing an exercise with another person or what have you? How do you manage that in the workshops? Um, that, well, there are lots of different uh, forms of support in the workshops. Um, people mm-hmm. have what's called a buddy for the weekend that is another participant usually um, that they're connecting with several times over the weekend a few times. Um, there's also a small group with a small group leader who's a staff member, and that's another form of support for people. And then uh, the facilitators ourselves, at, at every workshop there's a man and a woman, uh, usually a man and a woman, leading the workshop. And mm-hmm. we're always available uh, 24 hours a day for anybody that wants to talk to us. And I actually love connecting with people in that way and talking to them. So there's mm-hmm. lots of places for them to turn to for, for support. And uh, that does happen, you know, obviously it happens. But it's in a teaching framework, and it's have them really looking at, you know, what their motive is around whatever they're doing and if it's working for them or not or ways that they can – um, become more quote unquote enlightened in a certain way by um, either uh, playing around in that realm or be enlightened by deciding on monogamy and staying you know connected with your partner and going to deeper and deeper levels with that one person so uh, but the support is definitely there, and then afterwards we have uh, follow up with people and you know just different ways there are support groups in the bay area and lots of different ways for people to get get support mm-hmm. excellent thank you if you're just joining us you're listening to leading edge love radio and this is your host sumati sparks the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com and we're speaking with peter rangel who is a spiritual sexual counselor and a longtime facilitator for the human awareness institute and Peter, I know that you also lead a meditation class, and I believe you've been doing that for at least 25 years. So can you tell us more about that? Uh, sure. That um, happens at this point about twice a year. I actually have two different eight-week classes that I do, and it's based upon my second book called Living Life in Love. Uh, and in the back of that book, there's a um, a series of exercises that people can do and so what we do for the class is that each week people um, have a different meditation slash exercise they do at home and then when we come together uh, we do a certain kind of meditation it's called a heart meditation that I kind of conjured up at some level and it's uh, basically just closing your eyes relaxing your jaw breathing into the heart and letting yourself just slow down and let yourself be tender in your heart, vulnerable in your heart. And for years, I meditated trying to bypass all those experiences and realized I was sitting on top of a lot of emotions. So I call it a, a heart meditation, or more recently, I've been calling it a vulnerability meditation, in which you actually get tender inside yourself. And then that tenderness, that vulnerability opens up doors into other kinds of human experiences besides the linear mind, the thinking mind. And it's lovely to have a clear mind, but that's such a small part of who we are as human beings. So as people practice this meditation and soften in their heart and feel their feelings, um, lots of things come up in terms of grief that's perhaps been in there or feelings that have been waiting to be felt and that opens up doors both within themselves and then in the group itself um, we'll be sharing uh, in a very tender way around whatever happened in the meditations at home or sometimes people will talk about experiences they had during the week in kind of a support way. And there's a beauty of um, just the incredible intimacy that happens among people during that eight-week unfolding and the safety they have to share deeper and deeper as it unfolds and Uh, incredible bonding goes on in that and uh, each week the meditation has a different teaching in it and a different kind of attitude to have um, different sense that uh, is they're unique meditations they're not just sitting with your eyes closed so each week there's some different flavor of that and a different teaching that happens so by the end of if you do two of them that's 16 different weeks of meditation that are very unique and transforming so And then there's a section of the book that you read each week. And the book itself is a very much a teaching book. It's an experiential book. Um, People have kind of spiritual, tender, 
emotional experiences as they read the book, if they slow down, you know, and really mm-hmm. be with what's there. And it's um, it's spoken in or written in very um, understandable language and very day-to-day language, so it's not highfalutin or anything, very practical in some way. And then there are um, spiritual aphorisms in the book that are like real potent little zingers that can go into people and uh, awaken them in certain ways. So that's kind of the flavor of it is that eight weeks unfolds, we get closer and closer, and just a, a – people begin talking about the transformations that are happening in their day-to-day lives because it's about day-to-day. It's not about going off into an ashram. I've done that. I'm in the world now. So that's what I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. So the meditation class helps people to bring a calmer state of mind and heart into their day-to-day life? Yes. Um, It's actually kind of a couple things. It definitely opens the heart chakra so that you're tender and you um, feel more alive and feel more connected to people. And also it uh, helps to develop the witness to your thoughts, helps you become your identity Mm. becomes much more the watcher of the thoughts, the watcher of your experiences. And so that um, watcher has no judgment, has only compassion for all the human experiencers. If it's Peter's watcher, you know, all the human experiences that Peter's having because that watcher is watching with compassion, it frees Peter up to just go into all kinds of different experiences that a lot of people avoid or um, stay away from, they get afraid of or judge. And when all those experiences are embraced, then your full humanness is embraced. And, um, and with this fascination and curiosity for the human experience, and that, that part that's fascinated is the part that's free to just watch and let it all fly at a certain level it's really beautiful for people to have that freedom to not think they're they have to be um having positive thoughts to be in love you can have judgments going on and if you're watching the judgments with compassion you can still be in love while those judgments are going on yes i agree that's really valuable i i teach a workshop called transforming jealousy into love and i Uh offer three practice i offer three practices and they're all very big lifetime practices. And one of them is knowing who you really are. And it's for that it's the same purpose that you're talking about, to develop that witnessing mind, to, um, to tap into that part of us that's just pure unconditional love. And when you get a taste of that or you can be in that place, there's no room for jealousy because you're just accepting everything. So I will direct people to you who are struggling with that part of of my teachings um, who need a little bit more in-depth practice with how to develop that witnessing, that watching mind, because that really does take you out. So when I was at a conference recently and we had blank buttons and we could write whatever we want on the buttons. And so I wrote, I'm jealous as a way to claim that, you know, yeah, you can have jealousy, but, but if you're watching it from a compassionate place, you get to learn to just dance with it. It's not about never being jealous or trying to control your jealousy. Yep. I I have a great story. You want to hear a story about jealousy? Yeah, of course. Uh Uh-huh. So uh, many years ago, I had been living with a woman named Suzanne and, um, we decided to break up and it was a friendly breakup. Actually, we, we, we moved apart and um, then uh, as she had her new place. I had my new place. And late one afternoon, I hadn't seen her for a bit or talked to her. So late one afternoon, I happened to be driving by her new place and decided, oh, I'll stop in and say hi. So I went up and knocked on the door and Suzanne opened the door and we were happy to see each other and we were sharing in a hug. And as we were sharing in the hug, um, I looked over her shoulder, and there was this gorgeous hunk of a guy sitting there with a candle of dinner, and they were obviously having a romantic dinner together. And they weren't doing mm. anything wrong. They certainly had a right to do that. And what happened for me when I saw that is the room turned red with jealousy. It was just involuntary. Mm. It had no reason to exist. Nothing was going wrong. But the power of that emotion just came into the room. And as we finished our hug, uh, um Suzanne said to me, you know, what's happening, Peter? And I said, Suzanne, I'm experiencing jealousy with just this fascination and kind of humor to it. <laughs> and the guy came 
the, the guy came over who um, I'd never met, and he came over and said, oh, what's happening? I said, oh, don't worry. I'm just experiencing jealousy, you know, and we all <laughs> laughed, and they, in, they they invited me in, and we had dinner together, you know, and said I did go on my <laughs> way. But, but it was just in that moment there was something that happened in me about just the, the beauty of allowing the experience. Emotions don't have ration to them. They aren't linear. They're not from the mind. And so all the mind tries to make up about them is to, you know, make it wrong or good or bad or whatever it does. And it isn't true. Emotions are just emotions to be experienced and felt. And um, another piece that kind of goes along with this is uh, my son who uh, – has been one of my greatest teachers as well, particularly around the age of two, three years old when they're still innocent and alive and watching ants crawl along the ground. And all I had to do was tune into him and I was in the moment and I was in joy. So one, one night, he was about three years old, four years old, I guess, at the time. Uh, we were in our hot tub in our backyard and uh, the sun started to go down and started to get dark. And Kavi, his name's Kavi, um, he turned to me and said, Daddy, I'm scared. And the daddy and me is trying to figure out, well, do I explain there's no monster in the bushes? What do I do? And I went, oh, well, Kavi, let's just say hello to your fear. So together we went, hello, fear. And a few minutes later he turned to me and said, daddy, my fear is gone. And I said, okay, well, let's Aww. say goodbye to your fear. And so we said goodbye to the fear, and, you know, he just went about his business, and I didn't think anything of it. Well, it so happened the next evening, he and I were in the hot tub together just as the sun was going down and it was getting dark. And he was over in another corner of the hot tub. I wasn't paying any attention to him. And all of a sudden, I hear from over in the corner of the hot tub, hello, fear. And just pure <laughs> innocence, no judgment. He just saw that it came. And a few minutes later, all on his own, he goes, goodbye, fear. And in that moment, it just this light bulb went off of me, and I said, if I, if I could only be so innocent and just embrace uh, every experience that comes my way, that, you know, there's my teacher. You know, there his innocence is my teacher. So, um, the, you know, the joke becomes, you know, well, as I go through life now, it's hello, jealousy, goodbye, jealousy, hello, sexual yeah. turn on, goodbye, sexual turn on, hello, anger, <laughs> goodbye, anger, you know. All of that, you know, just it's so beautiful just to let energy experiences pass through and just celebrate them, you know. Mm, one of my favorite I sayings, one, one of my favorite sayings these days is life is a series of experiences leading nowhere. So we end up just here, just now, and no spiritual ladders to climb and no more goals of enlightenment or, you know, I let go of material ladders and, you know, all status ladders a long time ago, but I've still had my spiritual ladders to climb. And when you let go of those, mm -hmm. it's very scary because all we are is here and now hanging out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Spiritual hanging out. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. Thank you, Pierre. What a, what a beautiful teacher you are. So I want to ask mm. you for, um, for like one or two examples, because you talked about that when you do your courses, there's, you know, 16 different kinds of meditations. So right. I'm wondering, like, do, are these things you created or are they, did you draw from all your various teachers? And then maybe you can give us a sampling of one or two of, the kinds of meditations you're talking about. Sure. Um, oh, so this is a fun one. Just the first week of the second class I teach, um, uh, their, their task, their exercise, their meditation at home is to, uh, for 10 minutes a day, to do what's called a complaining meditation, which is just to <laughs> let, let all the complaints, they look in their eyes in the mirror and they start complaining and just complaining and complaining. Con we call it conscious complaining. And so they get mm -hmm. to let it loose and let it rip. And then after they finish that, they take a breath and slow down and come back into their body if they're out in the complaining vibration. And then they do uh, 10 minutes of appreciations in the mirror. And then they get to see that they're kind of polar opposites in, from one perspective. And so then they get to move into the energy and the vibration of appreciation and just notice the difference between the two. And, you know, if you're in the complaining vibration, the subject matter doesn't really matter. If you just can complain about this and that and that and that, because that's the vibration you're in. 
And when you're in the appreciation mm-hmm. vibration, what you're appreciating really at some level doesn't matter. You're in the appreciation vibration, so you keep on bringing forward appreciations. And that way you get to see how much the vibration you're living in in the moment really determines the thoughts. It determines what you think and, you know, what uh, your human experience is. So that's one one week. Um, the, 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 fun, the fun one, there's um, – well, let's see. There are so many of them. Um, there's a toothpick meditation in which you have a box of 250 toothpicks. You dump them out on the ground, and you slowly and be with each toothpick as you pick it up and put it back in the box. And you do that mm. for 20 minutes a day, and you just get to be with each toothpick and slow down and be in the presence of it. And um, a lot of, a lot of, um, how can I say it? a lot of the absurdity of life comes through in that because what's more absurd than putting 250 toothpicks one at a time in a box. (laughs) So a lot of times humor comes up in that one and lots of different uh, things happen out of that one. Another one. Here's another of my favorite ones. Um, So um, this is for people that drive their cars. Okay. To drive in the right hand Mm -hmm. lane of the freeway, for 20 minutes a day if you're going someplace uh, and just stay in the right-hand lane no matter what. And people learn tremendous amounts about uh, the illusion of time. And some sports car will go rushing by them and they're envious of that fast car. And then they'll get to a bridge toll and the sports car is two cars ahead of them, you know, and just (laughs) just what it is to, to mess around with. You know, the pace we go and to slow things down. And as you're in the right-hand lane, you look at the trees and you actually um, look for kids in other cars because adults are lost in thoughts. But kids you can sometimes make contact with because they're much closer oh. to the moment and available to wave to you and stuff like that. So, Oh, that's a good you know, one. In- Boy, I, I need that one. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a friend who took my class 20 years ago, and she still drives in the right-hand lane of the freeway. That's I can see that. Life. I mean, I can barely even stand it when, when I'm not even the driver. I want to go, would you get out uh, of this lane? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the pace, That's of, so great. You know, the pace in this country is insane. Mm-hmm, totally, yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing those with us. And um, you talked about in your meditation course that there's a deep bonding that happens among the participants. And I also know that that happens in the high workshops. And there's a lot of community that comes out of the high workshops as well. So can you touch Uh on the topic of community and particularly community if you're practicing any kind of non-traditional relationship structure, the value of community for us when we are all stepping outside the norms of relationship. Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, as, as people go through the workshops, there are nine different levels of the workshop, and actually you do uh, levels one through five in order, and then you can do six, seven, eight, and nine in any order after one through five. And so a lot of times um, as people go through the different levels, obviously um, people choose the pace they go through and you know, in Northern California, there's, um, oh, I think six level ones a year and four level twos and, you know, two level threes, fours, that kind of thing. So people do mm-hmm. tend to go through the workshops in groups of people so they get to know each other as they go through the levels. And obviously each new work level on Friday night, it's a new group of people and some people know each other well. Some people may have been years since they've been there, so they're stepping back into the community or whatever. But as they go through the levels, they get to to meet each other and know each other in that way. And then we have our own um, uh, uh, heartbeat, it's called, and it's kind of like um, uh, opportunity for the whole community to communicate online. And there are different blog areas and different areas of people connecting. And one of the areas is for polyamorous people, so they can, you know, communicate any kind of events that are happening and all of that. And you sign up for, you know, to be on that particular blog and then you get that kind of information. And so that's one other way. And then, um, you know, we have lots of different support groups and, you know, that both monogamous people and poly people go to um, around the Bay Area. And, you know, we do lead workshops all around the world, but the most concentrated place is here in Northern California. So the community is the largest here. And, um, so there are lots of different ways that people meet. There are um, non-official high events. There are some what are called touch groups that people go to. And, 
you know, just lots of different ways that people communicate with each other to set things up. And a lot of it is through, it's kind of like a Facebook for high participants. So they have that as well as after every workshop, that that particular workshop has its own little chat group. And so they can communicate with each other about getting together and things like that. Cool. And how important is community if you're practicing non-monogamy? Um, I think it's really important. Well, first of all, you have the high language to speak uh, with one another, which is incredible as far as, you know, the tone that's set and the um, kindness that's there and a certain um, level of creativity that happens in it. You know, people, many people have been practicing for years and they're teaching the newer people as they come through like you, you know, and, you know, you're, you've been in that world quite a while, so you have a lot to offer and, so all of that happens through through community and in the general population at large you can't very well wear a sign that says I'm poly or maybe you can but not many <laughs> people do so how how do you, how do you actually find people that are have like-minded and some people are out about being poly and other people because of their jobs or whatever you know whatever goes on for them they don't want to be out in the world with that so you know they're certainly um websites and things to go online to find people, but they don't have the common um, language that high participants and team members do. And so a lot of people, you know, stay connected through all of that. There are houses where people share, you know, rent houses together and share in that way. And, you know, just lots of different, um, there's a huge high poly community in the Bay area for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I found that, um, when you're in community of other people that are practicing non-traditional relationships, it normalizes the issues that we go through. And uh, we don't feel so isolated in the struggles that we're having. Because if you're having a struggle in your relationship and you go to somebody from the mainstream world, they'll just instantly blame it on the fact that you're polyamorous. <laughs> you know, But you never yeah. see people blaming monogamy for someone's problems. So... Uh-huh. It's nice to have that assumption that you're choosing polyamory and then let's work on your issues within that framework instead of blaming it on polyamory. Right. And and the distinction I would make, too, is to really um, be aware of why you're choosing polyamory if you're choosing it. Because I think some people, because their partner wants to be involved in it, get involved in it. Um, in a way to try and save their relationship and it's not really for them. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's really important that you're in it for yourself. You know, I'm here to learn and grow and to let go of attachment or to ex- explore jealousy and see what that is or whatever personally I can get out of it. You know, that's why I'm mm-hmm. there, not because, mm-hmm. you know, my wife wants it and I'd better fall along and uh, then I'm mm-hmm. in it for the wrong reasons. So, you know, but people right. that are in it from the perspective of their own growth, it's incredible what can happen for them in terms of having the tools to communicate and having the value of emotional vulnerability and realness and, you know, making sure that uh, everyone's in integrity that's involved and, you know, that it's uh, nothing is not being communicated to partners that um, is all in agreement and all of that goes on mm-hmm. and it's all taught in the, in the, in the workshops and it's part of the community. Right. And um, some people choose polyamory maybe sometimes for a temporary period of time to challenge themselves to overcome jealousy or let go of attachment. And I found that other people like myself, it's an orientation like being gay where I couldn't thrive long term in a monogamous relationship. So for some of us, it's like when we find out there is such a thing as ethical non-monogamy. It's like a right. huge sigh of relief that, oh, there's that. I don't have to cheat anymore. <laughs> yeah, for sure. In terms of um, that's it's home, it's, you know, many, many people believe that that is the natural state of human beings. And 
you know, that uh, monogamy is an artificial thing, and that's their belief, mm-hmm. and that they're fine to have it. But mostly, what you're saying is the beauty of the, you know, the release of oh, like-minded people, and I, you know, don't have to fight society, the church, or my parents, mm-hmm. or whatever people people <laughs> have to fight in terms of, at last, you know, here's my here's my crowd, here's my crew, here's my family. You know, it's beautiful mm-hmm. to exactly. when people find that yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Right. So um, the the main reason why I, I remembered you, that you had been in my life many years ago and that I wanted to have you on the show, is because you have a workshop coming up called Navigating Polyamory. And um, so I'm glad that we're focusing on polyamory now. Um, what else do you want to let people know who might be first venturing into the polyamory world? Well, um, this day um, is for everybody that's, uh, involved in polyamory, whether you're currently in a relationship or some, there are some triads coming and, you know, different configurations of people. There are people that um, are, are currently are cu- couples and kind of wondering about this world and are just exploring into it. Couples that have been together for a long time and they're just wanting to be in the flavor of all of that. And single people that have either tried, tried it or are curious about it. So it's for anybody in the poly curiosity or the actual world and it's um it's a very beautiful day in terms of first of all getting people connected with one another and seeing the you know talking about what their particular flavor of relationship is and letting everyone see that and then um, having exercises to um, have people open their heart to one another and see each other as individuals as well as part of whatever they're part of if they are and then we'll be um, having people come forward to uh, to celebrate what they're celebrating with one another so that people can get that flavor. And then if people are having mm-hmm. difficulty or, you know, contracting and getting into processing about it, I have um, really quick ways to get to the bottom line of things. And um, a combination of heartfelt experiences as well as practical um, questions that people don't even think of asking one another, ways of making agreements that people aren't aware of, of ways of being sensitive to your partner while not giving your power away, and all kinds of things I've learned in my office with people and can pass on to people in that way. So very much people who are there in that day will have the opportunity to maybe go to new levels within themselves as individuals or uh, couples or triads or whatever, you know, to go to new levels of love or take home some tools that work for them. And, you know, we'll all be talking after someone processes something, we'll all be talking about what just happened and what the learning is. And so people get safe really quickly. So they're being bottom line, honest about things. And it's, uh, it's very heartfelt and very practical and very real. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So can you give us a little teaser and maybe share um, somebody who's, who might be just thinking about polyamory or a couple that's exploring it, what would be a good tool um, that, they, that they can take away from the workshop? Um, so for me, um, what you're asking isn't isn't what I would do because I don't sit in tools. I don't sit in ideas. I sit with individuals who are having experiences and I tune into their experiences and then out of what transpires, something arises. So I don't sit Mm -hmm. with predetermined tools and ideas because each individual is very um, uh, unique in terms of what they Mm -hmm. want to need each configuration mm-hmm. has three individuals and it's, you know, three, four, whatever individuals. And mm-hmm. that whole system is unique. So to sit with predetermined ideas isn't what I do. I, I mm. be with what is in front of me and then mm-hmm. we are all exploring together and we come up with solutions that are so unique, original, you know, creative uh, because it's for everyone that's there and everyone's buy-in and, you know, we've all co-created it together. That it, so it works for everyone. And um, so that's how I work with people. And that feels very alive and in the moment and invigorating for me and for um, creative for people coming up with ideas they had never even thought of. And a lot of times I haven't thought of the ideas either because it just arises mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're bringing that depth of experience you have of being in the present moment, um, being present for other people, making it 
safe for people to tap into their tender heart, um, really coming from a place of love in their communications and all those those uh, skills that you've acquired over the years and all those ways of being, the ways that you show up in the world, you're just being that in your workshop and other people get to be that way too. Absolutely. You, you hit it perfectly. And, the, you know, the, <laughs> kind of the, the other piece has to do with just um, as you're talking, as you're processing, as you're talking about whatever, quote, unquote, the issue is, the attitude with which you're talking is much more important than trying to find some solution. So if you're mm. feeling any kind of um, any kind of separation or animosity or leftover anger or something, um, that isn't the time to process stuff. You have to have this feeling of, oh, there's my friend who I'm processing with. There's my buddy over there. There's, you know, um, I feel on the same side with them versus we're in polarity and opposition and in some kind of power struggle. So if anyone who's involved in that processing has the feeling like they don't feel like they're on the same side with someone, that's what they speak. And the processing stops until everyone can find their love for one another again. And then you continue with the processing with a whole different attitude. And out of that new attitude, all kinds of solutions show up that can't show up when you're in a power struggle. So it's really yeah. important to look at, you know, the attitude with which you're processing is, is every bit or maybe even more important than uh, trying to find a solution because then the creativity comes forward and the partnership and, oh, I see your point of view and all kinds of things happen that's very different than when you're trying to dig your feet in and get your way or whatever. You know? Todd, you just triggered a very old memory for me. I think that you and Donna led the couples workshop that I first attended in 1997, I did high level one, and then I did the level one couples, and I believe you guys were the facilitators, and I can remember you demonstrating being on the same side by putting your arms around each other, sitting next to each other, and then talking about how the issue that you're working on is over there, like we're on this side and the issue is over there, as opposed to that we're facing each other battling the issue. So I have a visceral memory came back to me when you were sharing (laughs) of you teaching that very thing that long ago. So, yeah, that was really powerful. It stayed with me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I also remember you you guys saying, okay, if you just want to get one thing out of the workshop, here it is. Are you ready? Find out what your (laughs) partner needs and give it to them. (laughs) Yep, yep. And I tell people that all the time. It's so great. Yep. You know, that flavor of generosity begets generosity. That's all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that mm-hmm. simple. My wife and I are together because each of us feels like the other person does pulls more than their own weight. And that's a wonderful mm-hmm. feeling. Mm-hmm. Excellent. In all, Very you know, nice. In all, in, all, in all aspects of our life, from doing dishes to whatever, to sexuality to, you know, whatever. It's just beautiful to have mm-hmm. that sense of, you know, Wow, thanks for your generosity. So how long have you been married now? Married, um, what, 88, so 31 years, and we got together in 85, so whatever that is, you know. Yeah. And your son is how old now? Uh, Kavi is 21. Oh, uh, my gosh. He's up at uh, (laughs) Times. Yeah, (laughs) isn't that amazing? Yeah, Yeah. wow. He's up at... uh, He's up in Santa Rosa, uh, studying to be a welder at the moment. So, oh, nice! He's leading Excellent. his life. Yep, yep. Beautiful. Well, we're almost out of time, and I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can reach you, um, whether they might want to see you for counseling, or come to your workshop, or any other any other place. So, how can people reach you? Probably the easiest way is to just email me, and uh, my email address is Peter Brengel, my name. P-E-T-E-R-R-E-N, as in Nancy, G-E-L, at Comcast.net. Or they can uh, text or phone me, text or phone me, 415-497-3556. So happy to, uh, you know, connect with people. Welcome to contact me. If you're interested in uh, navigating polyamory day, um, just send me an email and I can send you information. 
And what is the date of your polyamory workshop? Um, it's May the 18th, so it's a few weeks away. May 18th in Marin County, right? Yeah, yep, San Anselmo, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and it's $100 Great. per person. Got it. Okay, well, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Peter. You were just a delight, and best of luck to you. Okay, thank you so much, and I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Okay, we'll talk to you later. So please join us next week at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio, where our guest will be Zach Budd, who is a well-known presenter at polyamory conferences. Zach talks about consent, self-care, polyamory, and the black male. And he's just a lot of fun. He was on my summit recently. We'll talk about the way the summit worked out and all kinds of things. So please join us next week when we talk with Zach Budd on Leading Edge Love Radio. This has been your host, Sumati Sparks. Good night, everyone. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 